Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this great time that we have together to worship you in the word. We ask your spirit to guide and lead us as we look at this chapter. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Lamentations chapter 1, starting at verse 12. Is it nothing to you, all you that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. From above has he sent fire into my bones, and it prevails against them. He has spread a net for my feet. He has turned me back. He has made me desolate and faint all the day. The yoke of my transgression is bound by his hand. They are wreathed and come up upon my neck. He has made my strength to fail, or to fall. The Lord hath delivered me into their hands, from whom I am not able to rise. The Lord has trodden underfoot all my mighty men in the midst of me. He has called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden the virgin, the daughter of Judah, as, a, as in a winepress. For these things I weep. My eyes, my eye, my eye, my eye runs down with water because the comforter that should relieve my soul is far from me. My children are desolate because the enemy prevailed. Zion spreads forth her hands and there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded concerning Jacob that his adversaries should be round about him. Jerusalem is as a menstruous woman among them. All right, this is a picture. We're still talking about Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the person that is being named here as the person. So we want to continue looking at this. He says, Is it nothing to you all that pass? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like my sorrow. So here he's talking about kind of, you know, you get a picture of Job, you know, saying, you know, look at me. <laughs> you know, I, I have got great sorrow. And he says, is it nothing to you? Do, don't you even understand what's going on? And I think this is, you know, as I look in our world today, all the trials and tribulations that are going on that I really believe God is sending our way because of the rejection of God, and nobody recognizes it. And people are crying, you know, don't you, don't you even see what's going on? And nobody seems to see. Nobody seems to care. And here we see the same thing. It says, there's no sorrow like unto my sorrow or pain, uh, which is done unto me. The Lord has afflicted me wherewith, all in the day of his fierce anger. And here we see God him saying, God has given, God has, God has put upon me this great sorrow. And if God's putting on you, there is no hope of getting away from it unless you repent. And in this case, Jeremiah is looking at Jerusalem who never repented and Jerusalem has been destroyed. This is after the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. And it says, from above has he sent fire into my bones or my very essence and it prevails against me he has spread a net or a trap for my feet. He has turned me back. He has made me desolate and faint all the day. So he's saying there's no strength. And there's no strength. And when God comes against us, there is no strength to get, get over it because God is going to get his way. He's going to make sure that we see the fall. And again, remember that this whole chapter is built in triplets. So we see in each verse the same thing mentioned three times in a row. So he says, from above he has set fire in my bones, it prevails against me. He has set a net over my, uh, at my feet. He has turned his back and made me desolate. So three points of the same thing that, that basically he's saying the end is coming. <laughs> you know, uh, there's a trap at my feet, I'm desolate or empty, I'm, without, I'm, I'm appalled. He says, the yoke of my transgression is bound by his hand. They are wreathed, and this means to be intertwined, to be tied together, upon, uh, uh, wreathed and come up upon my neck. He has made my strength to fall. The Lord has delivered me into their hands from whom I am not able to rise. And this is what he's saying. There's a, there's a yoke on me. The yoke was used to control the oxen that pulled the plows and the, and, the, and the wagons and everything. They would yoke them together and that yoke was pretty heavy in and of itself. 
and he says, I have a, a yoke upon me. And this is what, all up until this point, the Jerusalem kept, the Israel guys, we're free, we're free, we're Abraham's seed, we're, nothing can happen to us. We have Jerusalem, we can disobey God, and God will still protect us, is what's there was their refrain over and over again. And now he's saying, we are now bound. We are bound and there is no hope. He goes, God has tied together the yoke and it comes upon the neck and it says his strength fails. And when you find, you know, how many times have we been in our life where we just feel our strength falling? We have no strength. We go, it's the end. I can't go any further. Usually I feel that way when I am in sin and I'm not repenting to God and all of a sudden God will say, I'm just going to put so much weight upon you that you're going to fall. You are going to fall and you're going to repent. And it's sad when we have to go that way. It's much easier when we just repent and say, God, I am sorry. David, we talked about last night, didn't repent until 70,000 Israelites died and the angel of the Lord was standing over Jerusalem to, to strike Jerusalem and then he finally said, uh, I better say I'm sorry and repent. And we often, how often do we do that? We wait until God is sitting there with a sword upon us before we finally say, uh, I think I better repent. My life is falling apart. You had Balaam. If you remember the story of Balaam, Balaam was asked to come curse the Israelites. And, and he, goes to, he goes to God three different times. And the last time God says, if they ask you again, go with them. And in the morning he went with them. And there's nothing in the scripture that says they asked. He just said, God told me I could go. <laughs> they hadn't asked him again in, you know, in the scriptures. And he went and then that God sent the angel to destroy him. And the donkey saved his life. And the donkey talked to him. You know, and it took all of that just to get his attention. What will God do to get our attention? Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes to get our attention is what God will do. In the tribulation period... God is going to send 21 judgments upon the earth to try to get people's attention to turn to him. And that's all they're for. He's not saying, well, I'm so mad at the people, I want to destroy them. If he wanted to destroy them, that would have been happening the very first. Because he's got the power to just unthink them and they'll be gone. He sends all these judgments to try to get people to turn to him and say, I repent. And he will do all of this for us. And here... I, uh, Jeremiah saying, God, you've put a weight upon us. And the good news for them, and though they did not recognize it, is that they were told they were only going to be in captivity for 70 years. Now, now I'm not sure that that made it real easy. That's a long captivity. It's longer, it's shorter than being there forever. But the young kids would have been, I get to go back home. The older people were going to die <laughs> in captivity. And yet, when they left, we're going to find out, you, you find out that when they got to the places that they were going, they, they settled in like they were going to be there forever. And when Cyrus finally sends, tells them to go back, many of them did not want to go back. They were happy. They had found a new home. They were going to go, we're, we're happy here. We've got our businesses. We've got our homes. Why do we want to go back to, the, to that place that's destroyed that needs to be all set up again? And the majority of them did not return back to Jerusalem. And this is the problem. We get settled in second best. God has a great plan for us. And he says, I have a plan for you. And it's a good plan. And we're going, you know what, God? I'm kind of happy where I'm at. You know, it's not perfect, but hey, I've got, it. I've got all the things here for me. I don't, I don't have to worry about it. And we oftentimes settle for second best instead of asking God, what can I do for first best? Because first best usually doesn't look that good to us. It looks like we're going to suffer. It looks like things are going to be hard. You know, and God says, I want you to do what I, I want you to, and first best is I've got a good plan for you. It's what I have planned for you and we settle. We settle so often for second best or third or fourth best even because all the rest looks like too much work. God, you want me to do what? Oh no, can't do that. And we have to be careful of that. It says, The Lord has trodden underfoot all my mighty men in the midst of me. He hath called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord hath trodden the virgin, the daughter of Judah, as a, in a wine press. 
Get the picture that he's kind of a little distressed here. God has eliminated the, 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 the mighty men. Their army was swept away. He goes, he has called an assembly or, or a council to crush, to really break down. And he says, and he's trodden the virgin, and then he goes, the daughter of Judah, as in a wine press. Now, we don't really understand that, but, you know, the wine press was something they stuck all the grapes in and you stomped them down. You stomped them down and the bottom of it had a little spigot area where the, where the grape juice would come out. <laughs> and you walked around all day long in the, on the wine press, pressing out all the, all the juice out of the grapes. They'd throw some more grapes in it and you'd keep walking around. And, you know, they could have done it nicer and easier. They could have just put a board on there and screwed it down. But that's not, for some reason, that's not the way they did it. Um, you know, he stomped them down. He crushed them. He says, God, you have destroyed your people. You have crushed us. We are pouring out. All that's in us is being pushed out and stomped out. And God will do this for us, uh, to us if we reject him. If we don't trust, trust him, we don't look to him, he will put us under pressure. Been there myself on more than one occasion where I've been felt like, God, uh, would you uh, quit, quit running this press? It hurts. And he goes, are you ready to repent yet? Uh, well, no, cranks the press a little harder <laughs> until we're finally ready to repent. God will cause pain and suffering on us when we don't repent. Because his goal is for us to be more righteous and let him work out of us. One of the things that we have a hard time in this day and age is the call to holiness. That God wants us to be holy and righteous as he is. Now the only way we can do that is by surrendering and having our flesh crucified and letting him live out of us. But we like to fight it. We like to fight. God, I just don't like that. I, I don't like the idea of surrender. I don't like the idea that you're going to be in control of my life. We don't like people being in control of us. We like, because of our sin nature, to be in control or think that we're in control. All of us are in, being controlled by either God or by the world and the, and the satanic forces. One or the other. You know, uh, freedom and doing what we want is an illusion. And we need to be able to understand the scriptures tell us that we're either a servant to God or we're a servant to Satan. One or the other. And Satan will be fine. Okay, you want to think you're serving yourself? Be my guest. As long as you're not serving God, I don't care because you don't get to go to him when, he, when you're not his servant. So he really doesn't care if we think we're not his servant on this world. And he just kind of plays with it. Now when we turn to God, he'll push hard against us and try to get us out of, out of wanting to serve and make sure that we understand. He goes, for these things I weep, my eyes, my eyes run down with water, because the comforter that should relieve my soul is far from me. My children are destitute because the enemy prevails. So here's Jeremiah talking about the city. He says, they weep. The city is weeping. And everybody, when the Israelites came out of this city, this was their capital. This is where the temple was. This is where they worshipped God. And when they got pushed out of it, there was great weeping because all of this time they thought, well, we're, we're on this hill with God's temple. This, this hill will never be taken because God's temple is here. God dwells in this temple and nothing will happen to us. In spite of what Jeremiah has been saying, in spite of what all these other prophets of God have been saying, nothing will take this hill because God is here. We see the same idea in Jesus' day when the Romans were there. Everybody's saying, this is, this, is God's, this is God's city. The temple is here. The second temple is here. We will never lose this temple. Yeah, we lost the first one, but we will never lose this temple no matter what we do as they're not worshiping God with purity and righteousness. The leaders were trying to find ways to get around the worship of God. And this is what... Jesus told the Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees, he goes, you strain at a gnat. You know, 
You're, you're following every little minute detail and you're forgetting God and his mercy and his grace. And you're pushing all these rules that you can't keep on others and telling them to keep it. And just like today, there's all kinds of loopholes for those that are in charge. Uh, and this is the funny thing, you know, we, loopholes are not, not anything new. In the, in the day of the scribes and Pharisees, they would say, you can't do such and such, and they would have a way around it. You know, they go, you can only go one Sabbath day's walk away, away and it was a very short distance, uh, you know, and then they would place something that belonged to them and say, well, I've reached home. So I can go another Sabbath day walk. And they put something that belonged to them and they go, well, I've reached home. And, I, and, and they would play games with, with this. Uh, you know, Jesus said, you won't even help your mother and father because you say that all your things are Corbin dedicated to God. So you say, well, I can't give it to you because God gets it upon my death. Yeah, what a sad thing. He says, you're not honoring your father and mother so that you can pretend that you're honoring God. We need to be very careful that we obey God with the right heart, the right attitude. He's looking for obedience to him, not just sacrifice. And he says it through the scriptures on several occasions. God desires obedience, not sacrifice. It's what he told Saul when Saul said, well, I kept the best of the cattle so I could offer them to you, God. I know you told me to destroy them all, but we kept the best so we could give you an offering. And God says, I want obedience. He said it over and over in the scriptures. I want obedience to the spirit of the law, not just the letter. Now, how many times have you maybe done it yourself or know somebody who says, well, I obeyed the letter. I, I obeyed the law the way it was written, but not necessarily the spirit of the law. Fallen nature and the short-sightedness that we have. We see very short distance and think we have control, but God sees from, from now until the end of our life. So, yeah, we've got our blinders on, and we say, well, this is what's best for me. And God's saying, well, it's not best for you, and it's also not best for those that are around you, and I have a great plan for you. And God says, I want you to go through this. This is why he can give us Romans 8, 28, for all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Because he says, I'm looking down, down the road. I know what's going to happen next, next minute, the next day, the next year, the next decade, the next, you know, all the way through. I know what's best for you in, in eternity when you get to heaven. And we're going, well, God, I don't like this. I, uh, I, don't, I don't want to go to, you know, go into concentration camp and be beat with, with rods every day because I believe in you. God, I don't want to go get burned at the stake or scourged. And none of us really want that, but God says, I have a plan. It's a good plan. Just trust in me. And we, and we put our blinders on and say, uh-uh, there's no way that that's good. I can't see how that's going to be good. And God says, I can and this is why it's so important for us to just bow to God and let him win. You know, he's going to win anyway. He's going to win in the long run. He's, you know, he's God. And he is master. He is Lord. He is king of the universe. Whether we accept it, acknowledge it, and obey him or not, he is still God. And the problem that we have is many people have heard, well, there's no way I'm bowing down to God. He can't make me. Well, I've actually heard people say that, and I'm going, well, there will be a day that you will bow to him. At the white throne judgment, every knee will bow, including Satan, the arch enemy right now. Every knee will bow at the white throne judgment. We will bow willingly because we've already bowed our knee to him, and everybody else in the world will bow to him, whether they want to or not. Some of them may be forced down, just like the old movies when they conquered the king and they forced them to his knees. And he also says they will declare that he is Lord. That he will make sure that they declare that he is Lord at the white throne judgment. The world is going to bow. They will repent. Uh, will, will not repent, but they will speak and say that he is Lord. And at that point, it's too late. It's not a, not a repentance. It's not going to get him into heaven. It's going to be, he will get his, 
his way. They will, repent, they will declare that he is Lord. We do it willingly. And our job in this life is to do it willingly during this lifetime. Not just say that he's Lord, but treat him as Lord and say, you said do this, okay, I'm going to do it. Now we do have this fallen nature that wants to get in the way and say, ah, well, you know, I don't really think I want to do that. And we need to make sure that we are crucified. Daily we let God crucify our flesh and keep it dead and follow him. It's not an easy thing to do. It's very hard, as a matter of fact, to, to let God crucify because crucifixion hurts. It is not something we, okay, God, I'm ready, give it to me. We go into it with dread. You know, anybody who likes being hurt's got a problem to begin with. And, and yet God says, I want your flesh crucified. And you know, there's a battle going on in our life because we've got the spirit of God and the flesh there. And the flesh looks over and says, uh, you're not letting that you're not letting that, thing, uh, that person take over. I like to be in charge. And God says, crucify it. Put it on the cross and let it die. And unfortunately, it's something that has to be done over and over and over again. And over, after a while, it gets easier and easier to do. But, and we follow God more and more. But God wants to make sure that we're following him. We bend our will to his. And it's not an easy thing. The fallen nature does not like to, to bend that will. And then it says, Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem, spreads forth her hands, and there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded concerning Jacob that his adversaries should be round about him. Jerusalem is as a menstruous woman among them. And here is a very interesting description. A menstruous woman was an unclean woman because of the blood issues that were coming out. Having a period. Okay. Uh, yeah, having a period. She's like somebody that's unclean uh, in the Jewish, in Jewish uh, thought processes. And he says, she holds out her hands and there's nobody to help her or comfort her. God has commanded that his adversary should be all around about and she's an unclean thing, which means nobody's willing to help her. When somebody was unclean, they had to avoid other people and nobody was able to touch, touch them. This is one of the things when Jesus came... He went to the unclean and he touched them. He made them comfort, you know, gave them comfort. Uh, he went up to lepers and said, you're healed and would touch them. And nobody would touch a leper. Matter of fact, if you saw a leper, you, you know, they're still 30, 40 feet away. They're yell unclean and, and they were to stay away from you and you were to stay away from them. And Jesus would went to them. The woman that had the issue of blood coming out would have been an unclean person and she touches Jesus. She's in the middle of a crowd that she shouldn't be in, touches and touches Jesus. And instead of chastising her for breaking the law, he says, your faith has healed you. You know, this was the way Jesus taught and, and worked. He went to those that nobody wanted to have anything to do with and said, God loves you, basically. Our job as Christians is to reach out to the unwanted, the unloved, and tell them that God loves them. And that is important. There are people out there that don't think God loves them. There are Christians that don't think God loves them for some strange reason. You know, and God loves us. He loves us so much that Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that we could be in heaven and spend eternity with him. That's a lot of love. And he did that while we were enemies. There's nothing that we can do that is going to make him turn his back on us completely. Even when he sends Jerusalem into captivity, he keeps a remnant and says, you deserve to totally be wiped out, but we're going to keep a remnant, and in 70 years, you're coming back. He sends them into the diaspora after Rome and sends them all around the world and says, you're coming back. And now they're back in their nation again. In 1948, they're back in their nation to, to be a nation again after so many years, God reaches down. He keeps a remnant of people always. And he always has mercy. Even when there is absolutely no reason to give mercy, God gives mercy. 
And we may not even think that it's merciful when it's happening, that God will always have that mercy. That's what David said, as, as people are dying all over Israel and the angel of the Lord is standing over Jerusalem, God, you're a God of mercy. You, you are willing to not give us what we deserve. This is the beauty for us. God does not give us what we deserve. And matter of fact, he then gives us grace and gives us all the things we don't deserve. This is how much he loves us. And I can't fathom that kind of love. You know, and we've said this so many times, God created man knowing that man was going to fall, knowing that he was going to have to die on the cross, and he still created man. I know, I keep thinking of that from day one to now. That's how many people that... Millions of people that have rejected him. Yeah, if not billions. And just a small percentage of the people have accepted him and followed him, and he still created man for that small percentage of people to, to, to listen to him and obey him. I don't understand it. I don't understand that kind of love. And, it goes up and down, up and down. Well, we would go up and down, but he doesn't. No, he, stays, he, he stays steady. Up and down. We go up and down. He stays steady all the way through and loves mankind even though his righteousness demands judgment at times, he still is merciful. How long did God play with, along with Israel and let them go down, 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 down before he said, enough is enough, now we're going to judge you? How merciful is he to us when we start backsliding and going the wrong way and say, God, I'm going to do things my way for a while? And God says, okay, now let's go suffer the consequences. And piles the consequences on. And there is a point that if we keep going the wrong direction, God will say, okay, it's time to come home. You're going to do that? We're going to bring you home because of, the, because of your disobedience. But his goal is always to get us to repentance. And if we repent, the beauty of it is when we repent, he puts us right back where we started. He doesn't say, okay, you know, we as humans would say, okay, you've got you've to climb your way back up, and when you, when you earn this thing, we'll let you have your titles back. We'll let you have your position back. God says, you've repented. It was all a gift of grace anyway. Here it is. We have to understand God's grace. Too often we think we've done something to deserve something from God. You know, God, I have been following you for... Three decades, you, didn't, you, you owe me some good things because I've been, I've been a good servant for three years or 30 years. God doesn't owe us anything. Even if we served him for 130 years, he would not owe us anything. He would have just said, you're just doing your service. He said the servant, and, he, and Jesus gave the parable of the servant and the owner coming in from the field. And he says, this, the owner says to the servant, go get my dinner Take care of me, draw my bath, and then you can go get your own food. You're taking care of me first, and God says for us, you're to take care of me first. And then when we get to heaven, we get to rest. Until then, we get to work. And sometimes it's tiring. Sometimes we're, 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 we're very tired out, and we're going, God, does this work ever end? It will end. There is a day coming that we will go home to heaven. And when we get to heaven, we're going to look back at this world and say, wow, you know, I thought there were some good things in, in, that, in that lifetime, but this is home. I have made it home. And we don't really realize there are times when we might feel a little bit at home around here, when, we're, when, we're, when things are going good and God's blessing, but this is not home. But then I think, too, maybe we won't even think about this. In many ways, we won't. And I think there will be many times we won't. Uh, but I also think that we'll, we'll know that we left something behind. There'll be some knowledge of it behind, maybe not the pain, not the, not the struggles, but I think we'll know it. We're going to be blessed. We're going to have rewards. But see, one thing I think it, it's hard to figure out, but I know it's true, is that we'll know our loved ones like my mom and dad, you know, and uh -huh. grandma. We'll know them. And there's debate on whether we'll know those who went into hell. I think we will, but we'll know that they got what they asked for and what they deserve from God's point of view and realize, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really happy they're not here, but they made their choice and got what they deserve. 
because some people think you actually lose all memory of them. That would make your mind a, a Swiss cheese mind. You know, you know. Well, what happened? You know, I have a dad. Where's mom? Or I have a mom. Where's dad? You know, what happened to grandma and grandpa? Or I have a grandma and grandpa. Where's mom and dad? You know. So I think that I really personally believe that we will know, but we'll know the way God knows. That they made their choice and will know the opportunities they had and rejected him. So that we'll see it from a more perfect, perfect point of view. Uh, and so it's hard. We don't know for sure. But I can't imagine a Swiss cheese mind in heaven. <laughs> All right. Verse 18. The Lord is righteous, for I have rebelled against his commandment. Here I pray you all people, and behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. I called for my lovers, that they de- but they deceived me. My priests and my elders gave up the ghost in the city while, their, while they sought their meat to relieve their souls. Behold, O Lord, for I am in distress. My vows are troubled. My heart is turned within. I have, for I have grievously rebelled. Abroad the sword bereaves at home, there is, there is death. They have heard that I sigh, there is none to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of, of my sorrows, they are glad that, they have, that you have done this. You will bring the day that you have called and they shall be like unto me. Let all their wickedness come before you and do unto them as you have done unto me. For all my transgressions, for my sighs are many, and my heart is faint. So here he's continuing the the statement. He goes, the Lord is righteous, for I have rebelled against his commandment. Here is Jeremiah talking about the fact that they should have recognized their sin. Even as they're going into captivity, they're not recognizing their sin. And we've done the same thing in many times in our life where we're entering into judgment and we just don't recognize our sin at that time. And here he's saying, the Lord is righteous. I have rebelled against his commandment. I pray you all people and behold my sorrow. The virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. We're being taken away. One of the things that we have to understand, and I think this is so important for us, when we look at people that are not saved, they are captives. They're POWs. They're, they're in prison with Satan and don't know it in many times. And if you can just start picturing them as prisoners. You know, for me, that's easy. I picture them in orange because that's what color they wear at the prison. I think what's worse yet is when you know somebody that passed away, you That's hard. You, you, know, you assume that they're not a Christian, but they probably aren't in many cases. And you know, and you're pretty sure they went to hell, and that's hard, because there's no hope at that point. They made their decision. They went into eternity as a prisoner. And Jesus says, "They shall know the truth, and the truth shall set them free." He's the truth. He sets the captive free. He sets us free. And we just need to learn the truth and to accept the truth. My the problem I have seen with so many Christians is they'll read the Bible. And they say, well, it sounds really good, but it doesn't apply to me. Or they just don't believe it. Or they don't believe it. And it sounds good, but God, it can't, it can't be for me. And the world does this a lot, too, if they, you know, if they hear enough of the gospel. Well, you know what, I just can't, you know, I just don't buy it. It's not, it's not for me. It's not, it's not the way that it should be for me. And God is saying, I want to set you free. He wants to give us life and life eternal. All we have to do is confess that we're a sinner and say, God, I need your help. I repent from my sins. I need your help. And then he steps in and he changes us. And he says, I'm now going to show you true life. All we have to do is accept it and believe it. And over the years, I've watched so many people fight with God and say, God, I know what you say, but... Well, they don't really know what he says because they don't, aren't willing to accept it. God cannot lie. If he says something in the Bible, it is true. He says that we are a new creation in Christ when we accept him. He says that Christ comes to live in us. He says his truth will set us free. Do we truly believe these things, or do we fight against them? 
Unfortunately, most of the time, we, a lot of the times, we fight against it. And he's saying, I just want to make you free of all of your negativity, of all of your doubts. I want to let you know that I am your God and I care for you. And this is the hard thing that most people don't want to understand. He says they've gone into captivity. And here, here in verse 19, I called for my lovers, but they deceived me. All of the idols, all of, because this is what God's big complaint was, you are worshiping idols, you are harlots. You are prostitutes, you are adulterous, you have gone after other gods. And here, here is Jeremiah saying, I called upon my gods, I called upon my lovers, and they deceived me. They turned their back on me. My priests and my elders gave up the ghost or died in the city while they sought their meat to relieve their souls. Here's even worse. He says the leaders were taking care of themselves, trying to take care of themselves, and died taking care of themselves instead of helping others. And this is a serious accusation for leaders. The priests were supposed to care about the people and help them. And it says they went about their business taking care of themselves, not there to help. The elders, the leaders of the city, which are supposed to help put the city first, taking care of themselves. As I look at our government in our day in America, all of our, well, I shouldn't say all, most of our government people are taking care of themselves. How can they better their own life? How can they make their life better even if it hurts the people. And this is what the lament is. My priest, my elders took care of themselves. They went to get their own meat, take care of their own needs, rather than taking care of the city and the people of the city. David, when we talked about last night, he looked at the people dying and said, God, take me. It's my fault. I sin. Don't kill any more of my people. That is a true leader speaking up, saying, God, I, I don't want to see my people hurt, especially when I'm the one that caused the problem. And here it's saying the people took care of themselves, the leaders, the priests, the elders took care of themselves, and they were leaving their own misery. They wanted to feed their own soul. Behold, O Lord, I am in distress. My bowels are troubled. My heart is turned within me, for I, am grievously, for I have grievously rebelled. Abroad the sword bereaves, at home there is death. I kind of think this one is so funny. I am in distress. I am in a tight place. My bowels are troubled and my heart turns within me. This is a very interesting picture. We, we would say this same statement. I, my, my stomach is tied up in knots. Or I've got knots in my stomach. And that's what he's picturing. I am so worked up that my stomach is in knots. I can't digest food. I can't get comfortable. I'm very uncomfortable because I have butterflies in my stomach, knots in my stomach. Uh, my stomach is turned upside down. Well, it is. That's the same, same type of statement. It's a little, little more poetic. But he's saying, I am all tied up in knots at what's happening. You know, emotionally, an emotional wreck. And he is. And, and, but in this case, Jerusalem is, because he's picturing Jerusalem. You know, Jerusalem is being destroyed. It is no longer in existence as far as he's concerned because the wall has been taken down. The temple has been destroyed. They've knocked down all the, all the great buildings. In America, during the World War of 1812, Washington, D.C. was ca captured. The White House was burnt down and the Capitol building was burnt down and the government moved back to Philadelphia <laughs> during that period of time. And the country was like, our capital is gone. Same attitude that they had here. The capital is gone. What are we going to do? We have been, and in this case, it's even worse because the people are captives. The government, in, for us, got away, but the government here has been taken captive. They're being shipped off to Babylon and to be made into servants and slaves and prisoners. So in the long run, we followed their footsteps. We've always followed the footsteps, and we're following the footsteps even now. You know, it is very interesting because the statement, history repeats itself, has been said for many, many years, and it doesn't exactly repeat itself, but the same process happens. What we're hearing now 
And it's very funny that all the smart, educated doctors are stupid. They say history does not repeat itself. You know, and what they're trying to say is the exact same thing doesn't happen. But we can watch. History is repeating itself. We see it in the Bible. We see it everywhere. We right now are repeating 1935 to 1945. Right now we're in the process of repeating what happened in Europe with Hitler. With all that, he, all that happened with Hitler and how he came to power and what he did to destroy, destroy Germany and put them on the, on the path to destruction. Everything is there. The Jews were called disease carriers and, and isolated and, and, and made to lose their jobs. Right now, we're looking at those who don't want to take the, the immunization in there, that we are disease carriers, and we will be eventually kicked out of our jobs and, prob and eventually be put into some form of isolation, most likely concentration camps, to try to teach us to think correctly, because the concentration camps are called re-education camps, and they'll want to re-educate us to try to get us to change our minds. We see the pattern. We see the pattern. The SS is already in place in America because originally in Germany they were called the brown shirts. We have the Homeland Security Department that are wearing brown shirts that are answerable only to the president. That was what the SS was. We are all lined up for exactly what happened. Now, it, it doesn't have to go to its fruition. But as long as we have people saying, oh, you don't have to worry about it, it's, not, it's never going to happen again, it, no way will it happen, it will happen. If we do not repent and change our ways, we're going to be right where they were. Except it won't be the Jews that are being pushed around, it'll be those who don't want to take the, you know, take the vaccine. It's going to happen. Every point happened exactly the same, no, but the whole pattern is already there and we see it. Don't be fooled. And as we see in the Bible, it's the same thing. Over and over again, things keep repeating. And we need to be aware that God does not change. In, in, and uh, Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. And this is the fun thing. Reading the Bible, we go, oh, it, it happened way back then, and it's happening now. And if you look at history, it's happened all through history. So we look at that going on and it says, my heart is turned in me for I have grievously rebelled. This, abroad the sword breathes or kills and at home there is death. So we see here all of this going on. He says, I have grievously rebelled. The one thing about somebody who sins, even if they don't believe it's a sin, they feel guilty. And this is the interesting thing. People will feel guilty because the conscience in them will tell them that they've done wrong. And it says, I've grievously rebelled. I didn't, I didn't really believe it, but I've rebelled. My stomach is tied up in knots because I have rebelled and I'm getting what I deserve, but I'm not ready to repent. And now I'm suffering all the guilt that goes along with being in disobedience. And... It's so funny because every once in a while, I just read today an article about a man who turned himself in 14 years after he killed his wife. He goes, I can't live with the guilt anymore, was what he told the police when he turned himself in. He'd gotten away with it for all practical purposes, but he knew what he had done, and God did not let him get away with it. With it. And I don't know what the penalty is going to be for him. I never read, you know, didn't read the whole article. I was just glancing through headlines, and I'm going, isn't it interesting? that people will have the guilt. And God says, you're going to be tied up in knots. Your stomach's going to be tied up in knots. You think you've gotten away with it. You think that everything is good. And eventually, your conscience gets the better of you. The body and the emotions are so tied together. It's an amazing thing. When you are stressed out, when you know that you're guilty, when you know you're not doing what's right, your body shows the effects on it. And it's amazing how God has tied those, two toge tied those two together so that bad health comes along with bad decisions because of the fall. And it's an amazing, amazing feature that God has put in there. And that stress just makes every muscle ache, every joint ache. And God says, you're going to repent. You're going to repent at some point or you're going to keep getting worse. And, you know, we need to be able to follow that. 
Verse 21 says, They have heard that I sigh. There is none to comfort me. This is a sad thing when you know that people know that you're hurting and nobody comforts you. This is something, that's one of, one of the things we're told to do. We're to love one another. We're to encourage one another. If we see a fellow Christian especially hurting, we need to come alongside them and say, what can I, how can I pray for you? What can I do to help you? What can we do for you? And this was the lament that he's saying that Jerusalem has. I'm sighing and nobody is coming to my aid. In this case, God's not letting them. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have brought this day, you, that you have called, and they shall be like unto me. So here he's saying, the enemy is happy. The enemy is happy that I am in distress. But now he goes, there's something good about that. They will be like me one day. We reap what we sow. I am not a person that gets happy when somebody gets what they deserve. And I had an event in, one li in my life where somebody really mistreated me and I, and I walked away from it and left it behind and I had somebody come back and say, I gotta tell you what happened to this person. And he named off all the bad things that had happened to him. His family divorced him, one of his kids got, you know, died, uh, he lost his business and a whole bunch of things happened to him. And I'm going, that doesn't make me happy. I know that that's what God had to do to get his attention, but that does not make me happy. I don't want to see people suffer. I don't. Now, I know that when they suffer, it's what God has planned for them, and it's what they need to have in their life to get to wherever they're going. But I am not one to say, oh, great, they got what they deserved. Oh, yippee. I used to be that. You know, a lot more, well, that's the human nature. Ha, they finally got what they deserved. All right. You know, they, they got it. You know, and usually it's, I got it. I'm the one that did it to them. You know, uh, that shouldn't be our attitude. It should be, God, I am so sad that they had that happen and, and reach out to try to help them. And look and say, this is not good. David in Psalms so often gave us precatory prayers. God, go get them. That is not my style. I don't think that should be the style of a Christian. God is going to get them if they don't repent. God is going to pour out judgment and consequences on them. I don't have to call down his judgment on them. God is going to bring it in his time, his way. And even then, I'm not going to be happy that they got it. Because it is sad to watch somebody suffer. And in the case of this man who mistreated me, it wasn't just him that suffered. I might have been okay if it had been just him. But his family suffered. There was a divorce, the loss of the business, the loss of one of his children. It was them, and I know they suffered because of what he did. So I'm not happy about all of that because sin has consequences and they always affect more than just the person. I might have been happy if it had just been him. I won't know if I'd have been happy, but I would have been, in, okay, you know, he got what he deserved. But his family didn't deserve what they got, and, and they got it because of his disobedience. Just as the children of Israel got death because of David's disobedience. We need to always understand that we're to love those people. Hopefully they can be bought back before all of this happens to them. But not always and very rare as a matter of fact. And here it says, they shall be like unto me. In other words, they're going to go into captivity. And about 70 years later, Babylon went into captivity to the Medo-Persian Empire. They went into captivity because of the way they mistreated Israel. And that's what God said. You mistreated my people. You were too harsh on them. Now I'm going to give you over to the Medo-Persian Empire. And they were conquered. And if you know the story from, that, uh, from, from the Bible and others, they went through, the, they blocked off the water to, into, the, into the city and went in through the sluice gate and conquered the city from inside the city that thought it was impenetrable. And they just went under the, under the aqueduct and into the city. And it says, Let all their wickedness come before you and do unto them as you have done unto me. For all my transgressions, for all my sighs are many, and my heart is faint. Here is a precatory prayer. God, go get them. They're not helping me. You, go, you make sure that they get what they, what they have done. 
and they're going to. They're going to earn that same, same problem. But again, the idea is, do I want to make these kind of prayers? Am I going to be excited that somebody else hurts just because I hurt? I don't want that to be the case because that's not God's heart. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them. That would not have been any of our prayers. We're hanging, been scourged and hanging on a cross. We would not be saying, Father, forgive them. We would have said, Father, get them. Look what they did to me. Get them. I don't deserve this, and they, they need to pay. And he says, forgive them. And he calls us to be forgiving to people. None of us have been put on a cross, but we have things that happen to us that we need to be ready to forgive people. And when we forgive them, that means we give up the right to demand that they get punished. That is forgiveness. We don't necessarily have to forget, but a lot of times we'll say, all right, I forgive them. I sure hope somebody gets them paid back, though. We haven't forgiven. If we're waiting for them to be punished for what they did, we have not forgiven. God may still punish them. My goal is not to see them forgiven, uh, punished. I want to just forgive them and show them love because that love is going to win them in the long run. When I forgive them and I'm seeking good for them and they know that, that they deserve evil and hard time from me and I do kind things to them, it really shakes them up. Let go, uh, again, though, uh, that'll be God's prerogative. I mean, no, it, it's the right attitude. I mean, no, for a really bad, bad thing, you know. I mean, little things, no big deal, you know. But, but again, my goal, my goal is from the human side, I forgive them. Oh, yeah. I just let it go and let God do what God's going to do. They're going to reap what they sow they, unless they get saved, and then God may not make them reap what they sow or may still make them reap what they oh, sow. And that's what we need to do and leave it there. Not wish that they get punished, not hope that they get punished. God, help me to forgive and, let, and put everything in God's hands. And now I just love them as if nothing's happened. Now, I know that's hard to do with some people. It's hard, but then it makes you feel better. You feel better because if you're angry and you're waiting to see somebody get punished, the only one that really gets punished is you. You, yeah. you have put yourself in a prison waiting for them to be punished waiting for them to get theirs. And you've placed yourself in a prison and that forgiveness frees you to let God be God. And God will do what he needs to do for them. And it may look to us that they're getting away with it. God, how can they get away with it? I just don't understand, God, why you don't do your, your best, God, and, and make them suffer. And just to end this, we're going to read David's Psalm, Psalm 2. David had the same, same question. Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves up and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sits in heaven shall laugh and the Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them with his sore displeasure. So David was having a problem. Why does everybody seem to be getting away with everything? I, I'm suffering. They, they're getting away with everything. And I like the way he pictures it. says, he that sits in heaven shall laugh. He shall have them in derision. God says, they think they're getting away with it. They think that they have caused all these problems. Just wait. I am still God. I am still the one that is in... And the more we start to realize God is God. He is going to take care of all of our abusers. If nothing else, he'll take care of them at the white throne judgment. What I have seen in my lifetime, though, is usually they will suffer in this lifetime. It may take a decade. It may take two or three decades, but they will suffer. And even when it looks like everything's going their way, in reality, most of it's not. When, and how can we prove that? 
all we have to do is look at these superstar sports players and these great actors and actresses that have every, look like they have everything, they're on top of the world, they've got all the glory, they've got all the money, they seem on the outside to have everything, and the next thing you know, they're committing suicide. They're checking into a detox center for drugs or alcohol abuse. They had everything. Why would they have to do that? Because they don't have everything. They don't have the peace of God. And they have everything that we think we want. And we'll say, well, God, if I had lots of money, I'd be happy. If you're not happy without the money, you would never be happy with the money. God, if I just had fame, everybody knew me, I'd be happy. If you're not happy with where you're at, you wouldn't be happy with all the fame. You know, and we need to be able to understand this. If you're not content where you're at, you will not be content with more or less. No matter which way, you've got to be content with what you have and not be trying to keep up with the Joneses. Because <laughs> the funny thing is, if you're trying to keep up with the Joneses, they're trying to keep up with you. You know, you do a little better than them, they do a little better than you, and all you do is end up always dissatisfied. I don't have enough because I don't have what they have. And we need to learn to just be content. God, I have what you desire for me. Just let me be content. And then when you learn to be content, God oftentimes blesses you with much more. Because he says, I can trust this person. They're happy with me. And this is the important thing. Are we happy with what God gives us? Or are we totally dissatisfied with what he's given us? Too often in our fallen flesh, we're not, we're not content with where we're at. God, I need just a little bit more. I need a little bit nicer whatever. You know, take your pick. Some people it's cars, some people it's houses, sometimes you know, furnishings, job, you know, prestige. We all have something that we want a little bit more of. And we're going, I'm just not happy, God, with where you have me. And we have to be careful to learn to be content. Paul said, I've learned to be content in much and in little. And we need to have that same attitude that, God, I have learned just to be content with where you have me. And then watch what he does for us. Because oftentimes, once we truly learn to be content, he'll bless us with more. Now, this is not a formula to say, okay, I want a lot of things. Okay, I'm going to be content. I'm going to make myself be content. No, that's not the way it works. I, I, I know one person that we were teaching on loving people and, and watching how they, how they react. And so I had somebody go, well, I'm going to love that person so, they'll, so that they'll they'll uh, be envious and not, and not happy. No, that's not. That is a result of it, but if you're doing it for that reason, it's not going to work. It is sincerity that's important. I sincerely love this person, and they're going to be wondering, why can I love them? How can I love them? And it will, it will help them come to Christ because they'll see true love. They need to see the love of God expressed before they're going to respond. Now, they can, they can, with God doing it directly, but most people see somebody loving them the way God loves, or as close as we can do it humanly. And it goes, I don't know, but that person's different. And this is what we want to do. We need to be that different person. We're happy when it doesn't make sense to be happy, or joyful is a better word. Joyful when it doesn't make any sense to be. We love them. We're not seeking to get back at them. That kind of drives people crazy. A lot of times they're wondering when we're going to get back at them. You know, uh, they haven't got back at me. You know, it's been weeks, they haven't got back. It's been years, they haven't got back at me. It's been a decade, they haven't got back at me. When are they, when are they going to get back at me? They really, I deserve it. <laughs> and the love of God helps them to see God's love. And we need to be able to share that love, not hold things against people, truly forgive them and put them in God's hands and not rejoice when bad things happen, and, and even better, when something good happens, hey, I am so glad that that happened to you, and be happy for them. And it's not easy. Our flesh rebels against it, big time. Lord, we ask you to help us as we learn and we follow you. Help us to learn to forgive. Help us to focus on you and show people your love, your comfort in all that goes on in life. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. 
For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.